Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, I shared a message. Um, it was called Developing a Missional Mindset. And I want to do part two today. Um, Barry shared a couple of weeks ago talking about image, talking about our works, and then Dave talked about our passion for Jesus. And so I, I feel like these, these uh, past few messages have been stringing well together. And so I just want to go back and do a part two. Um, when I talked about a couple of weeks ago was about understanding our current culture we were living in, um, not out there necessarily, but in the church when it comes to uh, doing works for Jesus, the Great Commission, and we saw that mostly in the church, according to some t- statistics by Barna, we're overall just confused. Um, believers can't really identify what or even where the Great Commission is in the Bible, uh, Matthew 28, if you don't know. Um, but also there's this kind of tension, you know, pastors and leaders believe that we're called to live missional lives, but believers don't necessarily believe the same. And so there's this awkward tension we talked about. Um, We talked about understanding God's missional mindset. God sent his son, Jesus, on a mission. Therefore, we might be sent on a mission as well to seek and save that which was lost. And so that's God's very heart. That's what he's going after. And we're called to go after the same. And we finished by talking about how we can trend in the right direction. When we start talking about sharing the gospel, we talk about reaching out to people. We either get afraid and fearful or we get, start feeling condemnation and guilt. And we just kind of linger between the two. And I put it out there, can we just be available for the Lord? Can we be willing to be used by him? Do we have any passion to be used by God? And so this morning, I want to further, further develop this. I'm going to start out by reading three little short stories written by yours truly. In 1950, Pastor Dave meets an 18-year-old young man in the downtown area of Lakeland and feels inclined to talk with him about God. After exchanging names, the young man Adam shares he's been going to church with his parents since he could remember. He attends the youth group regularly, and he's an excellent student in school. He helps take care of his younger siblings and inspires to be a lawyer like his father. Pastor Dave notices the manners of Adam, yes sir and no sir, that fit right into every exchange. Although, although it was not totally clear whether Adam had an authentic relationship with Jesus, It was very clear that Adam understood he was to be a good moral person. That is, to do good to others and to be be a good person so that he might be a healthy, functional contributor to his church and society. Fast forward 50 years. In the year 2000, Pastor Dave meets an 18-year-old young man in downtown Lakeland. Pastor Dave feels inclined to strike up a conversation about God with him. After exchanging names, Blake shares that his parents divorced when he was young, and he had to learn to grow up on his own. After Pastor Dave dug a little deeper, the young man began to share that he wasn't raised in the church. 
He remembers he went a couple of times with his grandparents and on special occasions. But since then, he hasn't given much thought about God, the meaning of life, or what happens when you die. Blake is mostly concerned with trying to live a decent life and mind his own business and being a good neighbor. When he feels, when he feels it, he may listen to a preacher on TV Sunday morning. He seems, to be out, he seems to be open to going to church if the opportunity presents itself. Fast forward, 22 years, 2022. Pastor Dave, still living, still kicking it. He meets an 18-year-old young man again in the downtown area of Lakeland, and he feels inclined to strike up a conversation with him. The young man, Cody, instantly volunteers his own beliefs. He believes all religion is just a way to control people, that the best thing for people is, to, is for them to escape it. Life is about being free, not necessarily doing good, because good means different things to different people. Cody shares how he's a part of multiple friend groups, the LGBT community, New Age spiritualism, political group, etc., Cody makes no mention of his family and has no idea if his mom, dad, or grandparents ever went to church. He believes he must, do what is, he must do what is best for him, and you should do the same too. Pastor Dave noticed Cody is very open to dialogue, but also has a strong desire to think for himself. So three different stories, one in 1950, one in the year 2000, one in the, this year, 2022. And I'm trying to paint a picture for you, and I hope you caught it, that the times are changing. The times are changing dramatically in the world. There used to be a baseline of morality. And we, most people assumed it actually came from the Bible. Whether they, you know, walked with Jesus or went to the church or not. But that was a basic principle in our culture. And right now, it's being undone. I mean, think about this. As long as our country has been a country, it was known. The Bible, truth. God is a source of morality. We, everyone knew that. But today... All of that is being undone, is being shaken to the core. Another cultural exchange this morning, or cultural change, I meant, is that people just don't show up to church anymore as far as non-believers. They just decide to go to church one day. That doesn't happen as often as it used to. Because in most people's eyes, the church seems somewhat irrelevant, maybe outdated, or there's really no solutions you'll get there except maybe a, a nice peppy message. Also in our culture right now, people are a little more sketchy and standoffish than before. Think about post-COVID. You know, we just moved into our new neighborhood, and um, I don't know, and I'm, we're not mad about this, but I was thinking about this. It's like no one came over and knocked on our door to say, hey, welcome. Ever since COVID, it's like people are sketchy, a little more standoffish. Another thing about our culture that has changed is that 
what you would call a generational faith, passing our faith down to our children? Well, a lot of youth and young adults are beginning to question that. They just don't easily and readily accept their parents' faith anymore. That's becoming more of a norm. It's the whole deconstruction, asking all the questions, questioning God, questioning the Word. Would you guys agree with that to some degree? So what scholars and theologians call this, they call this contextualization. Looking at the setting around us and giving some consideration to that. Uh, maybe a definition here for you. The, uh, contextualization is the process of considering or studying something in light of its context or surroundings. For example, if you look here within the church, there's contextualization to what we do. You think about the songs that we sing compared to a black church. It's very different, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's very different. You think about, we contextualize by having a graphics person, a Richard. Where's our guy Richard? He's probably doing a live stream right now. But think about it. There's no scripture that says you need to have a graphics guy and promote stuff on social media. But why do we do that? To be a little bit relevant, to connect with the world out there, right? Another example, anyone in here speak King James Version, like, all the time? In your conversations, Joe, you do that? Yeah, yay, Joe does that. But think about that. The reason, we, you may read the King James Version Bible, which is great, but you don't speak that kind of language. Why? For context. Not many people would understand thee, thou, art thou when you're talking to them. Now, when talking about the church and reaching out to the world around us, it's important for us to consider the context we're living in. Now, some people would tend to over-contextualize. And what I mean by that is you'll see churches who water down their messages they compromise their convictions so that they just might reach someone. Right? You don't want to be too offensive. You don't want to come off too strong or say anything that could rub them wrong because you're thinking about them so much that you actually forget about what God wants you to do and say. Right? Think about in church, early church history in the 1900s here. They got to a point, the seeker-friendly church, I would say over-contextualizing. Doing anything, I'll do anything to get people in here. That's not okay. But then you have some places they under-contextualize. Where, hey, we're just going to preach, and I don't care what you think or what you say, I'm just going to preach. And you shut up and listen. And there's really no respect. There's not much honor, not much appreciation, or even given consideration of someone's maybe intellectual level or their understanding of God and morality. And so as you look at the trend of our culture, we're on this trajectory where getting to a place where Christianity and morality and God and the Bible is getting lost a little bit. And so this part two of developing a missional mindset, I want to talk about how we can reach a generation 
And part of this has to do with leaving behind not the message, but some of the methods we use to reach people. Are you tracking with me? For example, you don't know someone and you just give them a card to come to our church. Most likely, that's probably not going to happen. But if you maybe develop a little bit of a relationship with them, maybe invite them into your home or get coffee or dinner or something, before you invite them, that might open up the door just a little bit more than just, here's a card, come to our church, see you later. Now, the Lord, he'll use everything, he'll do anything he wants. But I think it's up to us to be a little more considerate and to study the context and our culture in which we live in so that we might do a better job at reaching the lost. we got to make some adjustments, church, in other words. Can we make some adjust- adjustments? <clears throat> so a question for you. How much do you think the cultural context influence what the disciples said in the Bible? How much do you think the setting in the first century influenced the disciples and what they said and what they didn't say? We're going to look at two passages today, and I think you're going to be interested in what you, you find with me here. Let's open up to Acts 13. We're going to look at two passages, two messages it's Acts 13 and Acts 17. Acts 13. I want you to notice, we're going to read a couple of verses here. I want you to pick up on the context of where Paul is at. Now when Paul and his party set sail to Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from then, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and when in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said. Okay, so where is Paul at right now? The synagogue, right? A.K.A. the church. All right, hold that spot. Go over to chapter uh, 17. Look at verse 16. So Paul was with Silas and Timothy. They set sail. And now verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, uh, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews And with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So we see he was in the synagogue and he's in the marketplace. He's kind of flowing in and out. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. 
because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, notice this, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. So notice they took him to this place called the Areopagus. This was a place, this was a public place where men would meet and counsel together. You had philosophers, you had religious people, you had political people, but they would meet and they would determine which gods were allowed into the city. They would decide about education, politics, etc. In other words, he was in the marketplace. Okay? Acts 13, where is he? The church. Acts 17, where is he? A marketplace setting. Now, let's go back to Acts 13, and let's read the message he shares in this context. Acts 13, verse 16, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, and he said this, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of him. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after he gave them, to, uh, gave them judges for about 400 years, or 450 years, until Samuel the prophet, and afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for four, 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And after John had preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, what, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to, the word, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate and he should be, that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad, tithing, glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, and it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, and no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not see your holy one, to see, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. 
And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, let us, let, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though, though one were to declare it to you. Okay, it's a mouthful. Let me summarize that message for you. There is at least 26 Old Testament references. He mentions five Old Testament characters by name. He makes five direct quotes from the Old Testament. Psalms, Isaiah, Habakkuk. And he makes reference to at least nine different Old Testament stories. Okay? He's in the church. He goes straight up Old Testament, straight up word. Everything. Stories, characters, references to the Old Testament. Let's go to Acts 17 and let's take a couple notes. This message is not near as long. But take note of what he says, or maybe even what he does not say. Acts 17, we'll start at verse 20. So they said to Paul, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is lost, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Three more verses. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some of the men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Did you notice any differences in messaging? Okay, let me, re, let me ask a couple questions. How many chapters did he quote in the Old Testament? How many Old Testament characters did he talk about in his message? How many stories did he share? Well, why not? Just preach the word, brother. 
Is that not interesting to you? But here's the thing. You want to know how many Old Testament references he actually made? At least 17. If you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you know, the little, it's probably on the side or the middle, and you look at verses 24 through 31, you're going to find at least 17 Old Testament scriptures that he's connecting to. So, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say we maybe need to change our methods a little bit, not the message. I think Acts 17 is a prophetic picture of what we're living in today. In Athens, you notice it said they love to talk about the new next thing. Have you watched the news lately? I don't know if one topic on the news will last a week long. I mean, it's always something new. Right? They, they had multiple gods in Athens. So many, they're willing to accept and embrace more and new ones. I mean, does not our country, aren't we a, beginning to be a melting pot of gods? Yet they had one God that was unknown, Paul would say, the true and living God. Is not our God becoming an unknown God in our own country? So here we are. We're living in modern-day Athens. And I want to help us today to maybe do a better job of reaching out to those around us, to helping us to think a little bit more about our context. Notice Paul in his message. He didn't under-contextualize. And just say, ah, forget it. I don't care what you guys know about the Bible. I'm just going to preach what I want to preach. He didn't do that. But also, he didn't over-contextualize. And just say, oh, man, I just, I really like your guys' gods. I like honor your gods here. No, he didn't do that. But we'll get into it a little bit more later, how he speaks to uh, these listeners in such a way that was really strategic and pointed in specific. Let me read to you. I know I'm doing a lot of reading today. This is reading class, if you didn't know. <clears throat> I want to read a lengthy quote here to you by Tim Keller. I think this is going to help summarize what I'm trying to say, and we'll move on. But he's talking about contextualizing the gospel in a culture. And here's what he says. Contextualization is not, as is often argued, giving people what they want to hear. Rather, it is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments which can fo- which, with force they can feel even if they reject it. <clears throat> Sound contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and the particulars of the gospel itself. The great missionary task is to express the gospel message to a new culture in a way that avoids making the message unnecessarily alien to that culture, yet without removing or obscuring the scandal and the offense of biblical truth. A contextualized gospel is marked by clarity and attractiveness, and yet it, is, it still challenges sinners' self-sufficiency and calls them to repentance. It adapts 
and connects to the culture, yet at the same time challenges and confronts it. If we fail to adapt to the culture or if we fail to challenge the culture, our ministry will be unfruitful because we have failed to contextualize well. So we want to strike a healthy middle when trying to reach those around us. We want to give consideration to maybe their context, but also we want to give consideration to God's context as well. So, if you're taking notes, seven keys to engaging in fruitful gospel conversation. We're going to take these seven things right from Acts 17, what Paul does in his context. All of these keys start with the letter R, just to try to help us out here. Hopefully, in sharing this, this will help us to what I would call embracing the cactus. Right? I took an inner healing course several years ago, and they would say, embrace the cactus. Something that's hard and challenging, yet you have to do it. And a lot of times, if we're being honest as a church, when it comes to conversing and talking with and being relational with non-believers, secular people, we see them as a cactus. We're like, "Eh." Uh, Jesus told me to, I guess I will. We're awkward. We're awkward. So I want to help us maybe um, see evangelism like getting in a jacuzzi or something. You know, just kind of, just kind of, just easing his rest, you know, a little more comfortable, a little more cozy. Won't really be that way, but nonetheless, we hopefully can break through some, some awkwardness, okay? We're going to embrace the cactus a little bit. <clears throat> so the first key to engaging in fruitful gospel conversation is relationship. In the generation we're living in, if you don't want to give time to any relationship and getting to know someone who doesn't know Jesus, I'm not saying you've got to be best friends with them, but if you don't want to get to know them, take an interest in them, ask them questions, guess what? They're not going to ask you questions. They're not going to want to, they don't care what you have to say. Look at verse 17. Acts 17, verse 17. Paul, give us some help here. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. In other words, he daily was building relationship with people who did not know Jesus. If we didn't know, Jesus modeled this for us as well. Luke 5, he meets Matthew, says, follow me. And it says, the scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why does your master, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Luke 15, it says, and all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke 19, he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And when the Pharisees saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with the man who is a sinner. 
Jesus' public reputation in the first century was that this guy is always around sinners. So much, he affirmed what the Pharisees said about him, that he's a glutton and a friend of sinners. He says it. Is that true about you and I? Now, I understand the word says, too, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But maybe for most of us, we, we're not even there yet. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not unequally yoked with a non-believer. So before we start saying, oh, I can't do that because I'll be unequally yoked, well, how about you start trying? How about you take a step in getting to know someone? So relationship is going to be huge. In your generation, if you're wherever you're at, you may think, no, my generation is not like that. Well, once again, the times are changing. Relationship is going to be important. So here's a helpful tip. Think about your daily routine. Think about where you go on a consistent basis. There's a couple of restaurants I go to on a consistent basis. And, honest, and I, I don't, I'm not going to say where necessarily because who knows if the person is watching or they may end up coming to the church. And I don't want them to feel like there's some kind of project I'm working on, per se. Right? That's real. But there's a place I go to. And I'm currently in two conversations, actually three conversations, with people who don't know Jesus. And this conversation is just helping to build a relationship. Because remember... Out there, people are going to be sketchy. They're not going to be as friendly as you. They're going to be standoffish. So you have to find a way to connect with them. For example, one brother, I came up to him. I've been, he has seen me a couple of times. I know he has. And a couple, it was a, last week, I think it was. I asked him, I said, hey, what do you think the meaning of life is? It's pretty random, right? Embrace the cactus. It was really random, and he just kind of shared some stuff here and there. Well, lo and behold, next time I go in there, I go to check out. I'm like, what's up, man? And he's like, oh, what's up, man? He's like, I was just telling my coworker the question you asked me. He's like, I've been thinking about it ever since. So right now, I'm just building a relationship, right? And so it's been friendly. It's been cordial. And yes, there will get to a time where, yeah, I'm going to share the gospel and all that stuff, but it helps, guys, it helps so much just to build a little bit of relationship. Can we not be so awkward? Maybe you're just an awkward person. It's okay. The Lord, the Lord will help you. But we have, to get over, we have to get past some of this stuff, okay? So relationships, key number one. And there's so many ways you can build a relationship with people. You guys can, can figure out all the other stuff. But think about your daily routine, how you can start being a little more intentional with the people you run into who are not believers. I'll say this too, because going up to a random person and just kind of evangelizing and just sharing the gospel, just kind of out of nowhere, like the Lord will definitely use that. But in this day and age, I don't know. I'm being honest with you, I don't know. If someone came to me and started preaching this whole thing, I would be like, huh? What? Now, the Lord can use it, and I'll do it, and you should do it when the Lord tells you to because you, you don't know fully what's on their side, and the Lord already knows, so he may tell you to do it. 
But if the Lord has not given you an unction to share the gospel with someone right then and there, then just go build a relationship with them. Just get to know them a little bit. Number two. This is probably going to rub us. Respect. Okay, notice in verse 16 of, this, of chapter 17 here, Paul's spirit was stirred, right? He was not happy. He saw all the idols. He's angry. Go down to verse 22 and 23. Notice a little bit of a difference, okay? Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Okay, in this context, Brother Greg Keener, Greg Keener, he's a theologian and commentary, he says this was actually somewhat of a compliment. I know in our culture today, you say you're religious, you're like, no, I'm not. Well, in this time, it was actually a compliment. It was a sign of subtle respect that you are zealous about deities and, a, and some kind of God. There's something up there that you at least have a framework that there's a God. And then he goes on to say, For as I was passing through and considering your, uh, the objects of your worship. Wait, Paul, you were just, you weren't considering, you were angry, brother. You were ready to turn over some stones and like throw down. But notice the subtle change. He doesn't come in there and starts blasting these people. You idol worshipers, you're going to hell. What's wrong with you? No. He says, hey, was considering these objects of worship here. What's Paul doing? He's showing a little bit of respect. And just because you respect someone doesn't mean you agree with everything they believe. Are we okay? That's number two. Okay. I'm not saying in order to respect the world, we need to worship their gods, pay homage to their gods, go to their services, and do all the things they do. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, you respect them by letting them know they're valuable, they're important. I, saying phrases like this, I appreciate your thoughts on that. I appreciate your opinion. Things like that show people they actually, you actually care about them. Because when you think about this as well, most people see us as Christians as a little more hypocritical. They see the, big, they see the pastor on TV who just cheated on his wife, and he's a billionaire, and they think, oh, you're one of those guys. Right, so when we come on the scene and we're arrogant and prideful and shoving the gospel down their mouth, they're not going to receive it. For me, the only stumbling block I want to present before people is Jesus. Not my language, not my etiquette, not how I treat people. For some of us, the way we treat people, that's an instant stumbling block for them. Instant. They see you angry, they see you late to work, you're lazy, you don't do anything, and then yet you want to preach the gospel to them? Really? It's a stumbling block. So you, we have to make sure we do everything we can 
to remove any and every stumbling block before we share the gospel. What I'm talking about here is character. Your character should be flawless. It should be hard for them to find something wrong about you as far as character-wise. I'm not saying you don't share your life is hard and you got difficulties. We, we all have that. But if you're lying, stealing, treat your family poorly. I was, one of the guys I was talking to, he doesn't know the Lord. He was telling me how he went to a man he looks up to. And he's a Christian. I and mean, he goes to his house and he saw the way the husband treated his, the wife. And he actually, praise God, he actually said, you know what? It actually challenged me to be a better husband. I was waiting for him to say, hey, man, this guy treated his husband, his wife like trash. Honestly, I was waiting for him to say that, but he didn't. He actually said the Christian husband treated the Christian wife really well. And it called him higher and it made him realize, man, I need to do that. That should be our witness. But if that's not our witness and we demand for them to respect us, Hello, like would you respect yourself? Would you respect your neighbor? No, you wouldn't. So, let's respect. Let's honor, appreciate the person. Okay, number three. Who said four? Tim. Number one, relationship. Number two, respect. Number three. Come on, Tim. Throw me off, brother. Number three, reason. Okay? This is talking about our reasoning skills, our apologetic skills, being able to have an intellectual conversation with someone. Okay, let's look at verse 17 again. Therefore, Paul did what? Reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Gentile worshipers. And then go to verse 20. What, what verse does this remind you of? When you, put, when you put 17 and 20 together, what comes to mind here? So he reasons with them, and then it goes on to say, verse 20, For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. the verse come to mind you guys I think it's like first peter uh chapter three it says sanctify the lord god in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason of the hope that you have within you paul reasoned with them and guess what they asked him what's that hope in you Also, 1 Peter 3 actually commands us, always be ready. So you may say, Brandon, I'm not good at the reasoning. I'm not good at apologetic stuff. I'm not good at, the Bible tells us to get good at it. The whole thing of like, hey, just come to my church. My pastor will explain it to you. Guys, I mean, sure, maybe God, will, God may use it. Bring them if they still want to come. But I'm telling you, that just probably won't work. Why can't you do it? And if you can't do it, you got to get in the Word. I mean, it's great. You know, I'll, I'll reason. I'll do, I'll do all of it up here. Fine. But it's way more powerful when an outsider comes in and meets over 200 people who can reason with them. 
who can have a, a real conversation about morality and God and what's the meaning of life? What happens when you die? What about suffering? So you may need to brush up on your skills because here's the thing. If you do number one, if you build a relationship and then you show respect to them, I would almost guarantee they're going to ask you the reason for your hope. If you build a relationship and you show respect and you ask them questions about what they believe, I almost guarantee they're going to ask you the same. Now, what we have to worry about is what is your reason? Have you thought about it? Have you given consideration the reason you believe? Besides, well, my parents, you know, went to church, so I do. Uh, it's the right thing to do. No, they need to see some substance here. They need to see something real on the inside of you. So a, a helpful tip here when having conversations with people and you're getting into some of this reasoning and talking about God and morality and apologetics and all of those things, one of the things that you will see me do is I usually ask a lot of questions. And the reason I do that is because when they start talking, usually you'll see areas where they're uncertain or areas where they're fault. They're faulty and they're believing. And those are the areas in a nice way that I'll begin to attack. <clears throat> For example, this brother that I've been talking to, okay, I asked him the meaning of life. His answer was to survive. At the moment, I was like, huh, that's very interesting. I never heard that one before, really. And so I just, you know, and I was like, oh, interesting. And I asked him a couple more questions. And I left, and I just thought about that. Like, man, how do I respond to that? The, the, meaning, of life is, the meaning of life is to survive. Like, what do you say to that? So I thought, next time I see him, I'm going to ask him this question. What happens if you don't survive? <laughs> Think about it. It's faulty. His belief system is faulty. The purpose of life is to survive. Well, guess what? You're not going to survive, brother. You're going to die. And you're going to stand before God. So I, I went back and I asked him that question. And he shared, um, Jonathan was with me. And um, he shared some more stuff. And, and he's working, so I, I have to be somewhat, like, you know, quick, but on the move. But he, he shared some more stuff. And um, I asked him, I was like, yeah, so what, do you, what happens when you, when you die? And I could tell he was just kind of like, uh, you know, and he just said some random stuff. It, just, it, really, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But nonetheless, I'm like, oh, so these people, and I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing him, they really don't know what they believe. They really don't know. If we take the time to ask them questions and they're uncertain and they don't know what they're saying, but then they ask you a question and you actually know what you're saying and you know what you believe, there's going to be a witness on that. They're going to sense, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. So ask questions. When you get caught in a bind in a conversation and you don't know what to do, ask questions. That will typically help you get out of it. So if I'm talking with you and I'm asking you questions, that means I'm in a bind and I'm trying to get out. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Number four. I don't know if we'll get through all of these, but. Number four is redemption. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you have to be able to communicate God's story of redemption. You have to be able to communicate your story of redemption. Look at, as we just looked at, Acts 13 verses Acts 17. Think about the context in which Paul communicated God's story of redemption. When you look in the book of Acts, you don't find one monotone, repeated method of sharing the gospel. You find multiple ways they share the gospel. It's not just the same, hey, so God created you and you sin and uh, he's coming and repent. Like, it's just not this same little method and same little thing we, we repeat over and over again. But there's some fluidity. There's gospel language just kind of flowing out of Paul, and it should be flowing out of you. But if you don't really know the word, if you don't even really know your story and how your story fits into the Bible, then you won't be able to communicate the gospel with simple language. I mean, I was confronted when I first started evangelizing years ago. I was confronted with, I don't even know how to communicate my testimony. I don't even know how to communicate the Bible without referencing about 100 scriptures and saying, hold on, sir, wait, let me get my Bible out and have to, okay, from Genesis, we'll start at Genesis, man. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. All right, okay, well, let's go to Chronicles here. By that time, the person is lost and disconnected. You have to be able to communicate the gospel in a way that's fluid, that's understandable, that's relatable, but also piercing and carries conviction. So let's look at verses 24 through 26 here real quick. So notice, in Athens, they had many gods. They had many gods, and here's what Paul says. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What's he saying here? He's saying, hey, I've noticed you have many gods here, but I, I come to you to declare the one true living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and he created you. What's he doing there? He's confronting their belief system by saying, yeah, you have your gods, that's cute, but I have one who's higher than them. He created heaven. He created earth. Everything that's in it. Your gods can't compare to him. Look at verses 27 and 28. He goes on to say, So that they, people, you, Athenians, should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, we move, and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we have our offsprings, for, for, for we are also his offspring. So what's he do? He makes a reference to one of their poets and uses that as leverage to say, hey, you're actually, you came from God. 
your, your gods and your idols, you didn't come from them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and he created man and woman. You came from him. Therefore, seek him. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art in man's devising. So within this culture in Athens, they love to build monuments and stones to their gods. And Paul is saying, hey, don't make, you can't make a stone for my God. He can't be contained by that. He isn't formed by you. You didn't think of him. You didn't form him. Your thoughts about God didn't originate from you. He formed you. You have any right thinking in your mind? God gave that to you. Do you notice he's confronting their belief system with a biblical worldview? Verse 30 and 31, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. In other words, because of your ignorance, you didn't know, now you know God is calling you to repentance. A day of judgment is coming. So when you tell of God's redemption, it is important that this is where it gets confrontational in the conversation. This is where you really got to embrace the cactus. You got to call them to repentance. You've sinned against God. You've created idols with your own, these stones, these images with your own hands. God is offended at that. You need to repent. You think you're an offspring of some other God. No, you're an offspring of God, Yahweh. Repent. And then he tags on in verse 31, talks about a day of judgment, and he says that Jesus has given, or God has given, assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What is he saying? He's saying God gave assurance by this, this message of the gospel, that there's going to be a day of resurrection. And think about this. In the culture there, they did not believe there was going to be resurrection from the dead. And so the last thing he says, which it, they do not like this remark at all. You can see by the next verses, they actually, some leave and et cetera. But he says there's going to be a day of resurrection. So he confronts their belief system where there won't be one. It says there will be one. And that's the assurance that my gospel is true. And they don't like that. So he understood the culture, right? Contextualization, he understood the culture. But he came to a point where he confronted the cultural belief system. And he didn't do it because he was angry or because he didn't like them. Right? He did it because of the love of God that flowed through him. He did it because it's the word of God. So, it's really important that you work on learning how to communicate the gospel with your own language and even with your, with your own story weaved in and out of it. So let me give you a couple examples here to still elaborate on how to communicate the gospel, okay? You guys want a couple examples? I think we'll, we'll end with this. <clears throat> so this one's an example of, of my wife. She, um, our neighbors 
uh, we, where we used to live at, came, um, came to the house, did come over and play with our kids often. But she felt like the Lord told her that, hey, your neighbor's going to come and she's going to be in need. So she comes and she's in need. And there was a relationship that she was in and the relationship got broken off. And so Allison begins to communicate to her that, hey, so sorry about this broken relationship, yada, 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 and gets to a point where she says, but hey, do you know, like, God wants a relationship with you, that he's the only one that can truly, truly satisfy your heart relationally, that that man who left you, he can't do it for you, but God can. Do you guys see, like, that's the gospel message, reaching someone right where they're at, and you don't have to go through like and quote like a thousand scriptures and kind of bore them to death at some level. But the gospel can be communicated in a way where it reaches deeply and touches the need of the person. Right? Isaiah 61. Preach good news to the poor. Talks about comforting the brokenhearted. This person was brokenhearted. They needed comfort. And Allison offers Jesus to comfort this person and the end of the story she did not end up doing that but I told my wife I said babe you're a faithful and a fruitful witness you did your part another example in our culture today people want to live a life of freedom right just want to be free do what they want to do as you converse with someone and you're learning this whole idea of freedom and et cetera, you can begin to share the gospel with them by telling them, and this is where you got to embrace the cactus, you're not really free. You're, you're in bondage to sin. You want to be free. You need to be free from sin. And the only way you do that is by repenting of your sin confessing Jesus and making him Lord of your life and you will experience a freedom you've never experienced before. Are you tracking with me? Another thing in our culture is success. Everyone wants to be successful. Money and cars and houses and all this stuff. Well, eventually, a person's going to break down just a little bit and when they come to you and they're crying or hurt or whatever because they don't have as much, uh, as much success as they used to or they want, you can tell them, and you don't even have to quote the scripture. You can say, hey, it doesn't profit you to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul. You want true success, worship God. You should follow Jesus. And maybe you begin to share your testimony and your story. Maybe you were after success and God caught you and grabbed a hold of your life. But for these little, these needs that people have in their life, that's the place where you can insert God's heart for them and God's truth for them. But also, it's the very same place where you confront their idol and say, you've been pursuing success. That's your idol. God, only God should be your idol. Only the Lord is worthy of your worship, of your time, your energy, your resources, everything. Everything belongs to him. It's not yours anyways.
So those are, those are just a couple of ways when you're in conversations with people to have a little more fluidity and flow and just a natural relationship and conversation with them and confront them but also care for them at the same time. Okay. Well, in here, what I want to do to close this morning, I want to pray if we could put Isaiah 61 on the screen. Can you stand with me? If you can't see that, you can grab your Bible out. But I want us to read this together. Isaiah 61. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. I'm reading the New King James Version. So if you think I'm hating on King James Version this morning, I got the New King James Version. So it's all good. Ready? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Here we go. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let's read it one more time. Begin. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Father, I pray this morning that the anointing of your Holy Spirit would come upon us. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you rest upon us? Would you cause us to be witnesses? Would you stir our hearts? Would you take us into the more? Would you make us ready? Or would you open up our eyes to see the world around us? Father, you have anointed us. The Father has anointed us for a work, for a mission, for a task. He has anointed you. Father, help us to step into the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
Help us, oh God. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.